Welcome to The Right to Shower, critical conversations on homelessness and cleanliness. Welcome back to The Right to Shower, conversations with social experts and leaders on why access to cleanliness is the human right. This podcast is brought to you by The Right to Shower. The Right to Shower helps build mobile showers for those experiencing homelessness. Stick around at the end of the podcast to learn how you can get involved. I'm your host, Darius Baxter, President and CEO of Good Projects. Today, we delve into the complex issue of systemic homelessness, the systems that give rise to cycles of disadvantage, and the research being used to power the pushback against systemic homelessness. Joining me to discuss is Associate Professor at UAB School of Public Health and co-author of the 2020 article, Patience, Perspectives on Elements of Stable Housing and Threats to Housing Stability, Dr. Anne Elizabeth Montgomery. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. God is good. God is good. But you were telling me a little bit before the show, for those listeners that uh, may want to know a little bit more about you, you say you have a a little dog that's joining us also on the show today? (laughs) I do. I do. She's in my little COVID closet that I converted for an office over the past two years and hoping hoping she'll stay quiet. <laughs> it's the first time I've heard this COVID closet. I heard it here first. I think <laughs> all of us have formed our little COVID closets over these last That's two right. years. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anne Elizabeth, can you tell us a little bit about your area of expertise and what drew you to that particular field of study? Sure. I generally study homelessness and other social determinants of health among veterans. And I've recently sort of delved into looking at suicide as an additional outcome. So since 2009, I've been doing my research through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs generally. And also I I sort of entered the, the VA through the National Center on Homelessness Among Veterans. But I started work around homelessness and housing instability after college. I volunteered for a year on the Jesuit Volunteer Corps in Portland, Oregon, and I was a case manager at a domestic violence shelter, and that was in 1999. And since then, I've just been involved in issues related to homelessness at sort of different levels. So being a case manager, working at sort of the policy level, and then most recently in the past, wow, 13 years, conducting research through the VA. That is amazing work. That is truly amazing work. Where did this passion for veterans come from, Anne Elizabeth? I think it's particularly important in this time as we're seeing the world starting to really rile up. I'm interested to know. That's right. So personally, I had I didn't know a lot about veterans. I'm not from a military family. I mean, my grandfather's fought in World, world War II, but that was sort of my only exposure to that. But when I was finishing my doctoral studies, the National Center on Homelessness Among Veterans was just starting up and it was sort of good timing for me to join. So I've learned a lot about veterans since then. I think it's obviously a population that we as Americans owe a great debt to. And I think that it's a population that we as Americans know that and our policymakers and our, the people who decide where our tax dollars go agree with that. So there's been a real push by the VA to make sure that veterans do not experience homelessness. And there's so much work and so much funding just nationally to identify veterans who are experiencing risk, 
to rapidly get them into housing or to prevent their homelessness. And if they're ha- you know experiencing chronic long-term homelessness and other difficulties to get them in to housing with supportive services to help keep them there. So there's been a real big push and I've just been fortunate to be part of it in terms of doing the research and hopefully sort of sharing what we learn back to the healthcare system to keep having effective programs. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And you talk about the different ways that that you've been involved in this issue. There's one in particular that stood out to me when I was doing my research on you, Dr. Ann Elizabeth. It was this project that you pushed for, the Veterans Assignment Single Site versus Scattered Site Permanent Supportive Housing for Veterans. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what was your role in that project and just maybe some of the things that you all did through that? Yeah, so that project sort of took place in the context of HUD-VASH, which is a permanent supportive housing program where basically there's what we used to call Section 8 vouchers. They're now called Housing Choice Vouchers. Veterans who've experienced homelessness and often have another uh, other sort of difficulties that may make it difficult for them to attain and sustain permanent housing. So basically, this is a program throughout the country, and there's different ways that it's set up. So it can either be that a veteran gets a voucher and goes and finds an apartment in the community. Or there are some communities where they've developed buildings. So that's why it's called project-based. It's like the projects, in quotes, can be small, they can be large. So we visited 10 project-based HUD-VASH programs throughout the country. And we just wanted to understand why. Because if there's, I think there's around 90,000 Section 8 Housing Choice vouchers for HUD-VASH. And maybe now 10% of them are and project-based units. So we wanted to understand why communities were creating these buildings, what the value was, what were barriers, what were challenges. And what we learned is that, you know, there are a lot of, it's very difficult often for veterans and non-veterans who have low incomes and even who have this deep subsidy, this voucher to get housing to find the housing, to find someone who will rent to them, to find someone who will accept that level of rent. There's a crisis of affordable housing in this country. You show up as a person who may have had legal difficulties in the past or financial Mm -hmm. difficulty, clearly financial difficulties. A lot of different challenges, yeah. A lot of different challenges. So sometimes having these units in a building can Mm -hmm. can make it easier for people to get access into housing. Yeah, no, of course. And you found this perfect blend from what I'm hearing, Dr. Ann Elizabeth, between this love that you have for veterans, but at the same time pushing your passion for public health. How have you been able to manage that intersection over the course of your career? Well, I think that homelessness is a huge public health problem, and it intersects with lots of other public health problems. So if you think about homelessness, it intersects with discrimination. It intersects with substance abuse. It intersects with mental health. It intersects with poverty. It intersects with LGBTQ issues. And, and, you know, there's issues around parenting. There's even like, as I know you're interested in cleanliness issues, you know, people experiencing unsheltered homelessness and not having access to sort of the comforts of home that, that most of us are fortunate to have. And so I think working in homelessness, you kind of can touch a lot of public health issues. And I think doing work around veterans and within the VA, 
It's also in the context of a national healthcare system, which, you know, it, it's serving the public. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. And I, I know this is something that is important to our listeners. And that's one of the things that we really want to dive into today, Dr. Anne Elizabeth, is, is systemic homelessness. But before we do, there's something that might be helpful to illustrate first. How can something as seemingly neutral like a system have bias? Yeah, so it can happen a lot of ways. And I think all of us in different ways have experienced that. When I think specifically around housing, you know, a bias is around income and socioeconomic status. As I mentioned, there's a huge affordable housing crisis in this country. There's not a single county in the United States where someone can afford fair market rent while working 40 hours a week on minimum wage. That's a huge bias. If you look at what's available to the lowest income households, the highest income households have that available to them as well. So like that's a pretty obvious example of a bias. There's and there's lots of <laughs> there's lots of other examples. And I think that systems may, maybe they seem neutral but they're not because they're made of people and policies and opinions and politics and these things also aren't standard, you know, they vary by community and geography and region. Yeah. And you talk about region. I was really impressed when I was looking you up, Dr. Anna Elizabeth. And uh, you're a blazer. I am. You're joining us from the University of Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a, I have a brother-in-law <laughs> that's a blazer. So I know a little bit about, I know a bit about, oh, good. yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. But, but as you, you talk about region and I would be remiss as we talk about the conversation around systems and where you're joining us from, from Alabama, particularly from the Montgomery area. How do you see those type of systems playing out in the community that you live in? So it's interesting. I've, you know, I've worked in homelessness in lots of communities, but mostly the work that I'm doing now is at the national level. But, you know, I've worked at a shelter in Boston, Massachusetts, in Portland, Oregon. I worked for the New York City Department of Homeless Services. I'm now in, in Alabama. And it does look different. I think, so one study that I'm working on now is specifically around veterans experiencing homelessness in rural areas. There's not a lot known about homelessness in rural areas. When we think about homelessness, we think about someone under a bridge or standing in line to enter a shelter, but it can look so many different ways. And especially in rural areas, it's hard to identify people who are experiencing homelessness. They may be in deer blinds or camping or in cars. So all that to say, I mean, for example, Alabama is a pretty rural state. So what homelessness may look like in the larger area here, it looks very different than what it looked like when I lived in center city, Philadelphia. And I think sort of some of these regional issues are that a lot of the responses to homelessness were created in these urban environments. And that doesn't work in rural areas where there's not as much housing stock. There's not Darling. the numbers, the, you know, the sheer numbers to have, like, for example, a project-based permanent supportive housing program. It, they don't work the same way. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to learn about those differences and, and what does work in those areas. Yeah. So how does something like that translate into civil architecture with respect to how it can impact those experiencing homelessness? Yeah. And I think a lot of it you know, can be driven by that. Every year, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development sort of sponsors and also mandates a point in time count of people experiencing homelessness in a community. So you think about a city like Philadelphia. You get groups of people to go out on the streets 
it's a city. You go down into the septa system, the architecture of the city, the parks, it, it, it makes it sort of easy to find people. You go into a rural area, it's very different. Help me understand, is that something that was done intentionally when they were building the city or is it just so happened to work out that way? I think it happened to work out that way. You know, cities just have, they have more people. They have more places, if that makes sense. You know, they have more parks, they have more shelters, they have more. And then if you think about like a rural area where there's, I don't know if you could say less architecture, but different, you know, when you go to try to canvas a rural area and identify people experiencing homelessness, you're not probably going to parks, you're not going to subway concourses. But then, you know, there's other issues around sort of civil architecture that's, you know, we've seen in communities where, and I don't know if this is architecture, but where benches have bars on them so people can't sleep on them. Yeah, we definitely seen that. So that's an example of civil architecture. Right. Okay. Or like when I was in Philadelphia there, you know, there was a certain park where they're like, you can't hand out sandwiches there. And it's like, why not? Mm -hmm. If I showed up at that park with a picnic... And fed myself a sandwich, nobody would care, you know? So cities are intentionally putting practices in place to create even more disadvantages for those experiencing homelessness, if I'm understanding correctly. I, I think some in some ways, but I think in other ways, they're not. I can tell you in Birmingham, I, I, I worked with a student who was also a homeless outreach worker when the COVID pandemic started And a lot of what he was responsible for was setting up sanitation stations throughout the city for people who were not housed. So they were able to wash their hands and to, you know, to sort of do some of these preventive measures that the rest of us who have homes were able to do at home. You know, these people who people who were unable to isolate. I think cities do things to help these communities of people experiencing housing instability, obviously. But then there's other aspects that aren't so helpful. I mean, there's, you know, this concept of nimbyism, the not in my backyard. Like, yeah, provide the services. Just don't do it where I live. <laughs> Certainly. So just st- staying along this same thread here. So mm-hmm. help me understand, what are cycles of disadvantage and how do they play a role for those experiencing homelessness? So I actually, I teach a course on homelessness at UAB and I'm, ask the students to learn about two frameworks. And one is is the social ecological model, which is like, you know, there are influences at the community level, the interpersonal level, the interpersonal level. But I also like to talk about this concept of severe deprivation that Matthew Desmond coined. Um, he wrote the book Evicted. It won a Pulitzer Prize. It's, it's great. It tells the stories of, of eight households in Milwaukee and their experiences with housing. What is the name of this book and who is the author? I want to make sure our listeners hear this. Yeah, they need to. His name is Matthew Desmond, and the book is called Evicted. I actually, my students read it, and they often say, this is a great novel. And it's not a novel. It's an ethnography. It's telling real stories of people who he lived with or lived in community with. But he talks about this concept of severe deprivation, which talks about adversity as being acute. Like, you're very poor. You're living below the poverty line. It's happening right now but also compounded. So it's not just that you're low income. It's also that maybe you have experienced trauma. Maybe you have a disabled child. Maybe you, it's, you know, other adversities that are sort of stacking on top of each other and then adversity that is persistent. So, you know, it's acute, you got lots of it and it's 
happening over time, often over generations, and it's really hard to come out of that. And so, you know, and so that can contribute to, you know, a cycle where the next and and this is you can see this in Desmond's book where, you know, it tells a story about a mother and then her daughter experiencing a lot of the same struggles, you know, because it's just so many issues to sort of fight. There's also on Netflix, there's a like a short series called Made, M-A-I-D, and it's based on a memoir, but it. It, it also does a good example of showing like this woman who she hadn't finished her education. She had a young child. Her partner was abusive. She needed to get a job. She could only find a job cleaning houses, but had to upfront pay you know, $50 for the supplies. But she didn't have the $50 and mm-hmm. her car broke down. And so it's just these it's not just one thing. You know, it's many things that keep happening. Yeah. And that adds to this, this cycle of disadvantage. So. Right. That is Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. Right. Written by Matthew Desmond. I'm definitely going to check that out. But Dr. Anne Elizabeth, you've done a number of writings yourself that have drawn a lot of attention. One of those that particularly stood out, and I think that would resonate with our listeners, is your study on patience, perspectives on elements of stable housing and threats to housing stability. Can you tell us what your objectives were when you were developing that study and the methods you used to study them? Yeah. So at the VA, every patient, every veteran who shows up for an outpatient healthcare visit is asked two questions about their housing situation. They're asked if they have been living in a stable, safe situation for the past two months. And if they're concerned about whether they'll have stable housing in the upcoming two months. And so we wanted to hear from these veterans who said that they were concerned about their housing. Really, we started by asking about the experience of being asked these questions. Most And most of the veterans didn't remember. You know, you go to the doctor, they ask you, do you drink? Do you buckle your seatbelt? Do you use drugs? Do you exercise? And so it's kind of one of those questions. But when we talked to them, we sort of ended up identifying themes of how they perceive, what they perceived safe and stable housing to be. And we kind of came up with four themes or descriptors of what stable housing is. And so it's safe, it's comfortable, it's affordable, and it's structurally and functionally adequate. So meaning they have a kitchen and they have a bathroom and they can do, and all of these things together, it's like they can do the things from this place, this home, it's sort of a platform for them to live the rest of their lives. When they're in it, they feel safe when they and they feel safe in terms of being able to stay there long term because it's affordable. They know that they can take care of themselves and they're not concerned that they're going to you know, lose the housing in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to hear from people who've experienced housing instability, what that means to them is important rather than someone like me sitting behind a desk writing a paper who has been very fortunate to never have that experience, it's more powerful. Yeah. But celebrate yourself in this moment, Dr. Annalise, <laughs> but to recognize that as you, you go on this endeavor to tell the stories of those experiencing homelessness through the platform that you have, to, to come from that perspective and to understand your place in the story is, is truly something that, that I definitely celebrate and I know that our listeners do as well. And I think the, mo- the most important thing that stood out to me when I was just listening to this is that you've done a great job of providing sort of that human voice in your studies, something that we don't see a lot in academic writing. 
Why is that so important? I appreciate that. And it is important. And I would almost all of the studies that I work on at the VA, we do that. We do include veterans voices. And I and I will credit the VA to a large extent because they have the studies that they fund and you know they want things to be veteran centric. They want what we learn to be veteran centric. They want the services that they provide to be veteran centric. And I think also, you know, in the VA, we tend to use administrative data. So data collected in veterans medical records or through like services that they've received. And so we kind of have the numbers like we know how many veterans experience homelessness. We know how many veterans go into a program. We know if they stay in the program or leave the program. But we can't know from that data what their experience of the program was, what helped them, what was difficult for them. We can't know how to make it better. And so that's why we we want to speak to veterans to understand their experience, because something can look good numbers wise. You can say, oh, people got into this program very quickly and they stayed in there and it was wonderful. Yeah. And the veteran saying, but I slept on the floor. But did they like it? Right. Exactly. They're like, it yeah. was awful, but I just didn't want to be homeless. You know, they're not saying they said that. <laughs> Your secret's safe for me. Uh, I I can't I can't (laughs) I can't speak for everybody. So when you you talk about this study, what would you say some of the biggest conclusions that you had were? I think. Do you mean the study where where we spoke with veterans about what they mean, how they your patient study? I know one of the big things was the safe and Mm -hmm. how you all were able to define safe and stable housing. Would you say there were any other big conclusions? Yeah. I mean, I think we sort of learned how they define safe and stable housing. But then we also, if you think about policies and if you think about kind of back to this systemic sort of issue, there are policies and funding to pay for people who need housing to get housing, but there's not, there aren't policies and funding to pay to help them make it into a home. And we hear stories about veterans getting permanent housing and then they have an empty apartment. You know, they sleep on the floor and they don't have dishes and they don't have pillows and the things that that we all do in our spaces to make it ours. That we take for granted, Dr. Mm-hmm. Anna Elizabeth, that we take for granted. Yeah. So uh, help me understand how do there's just I'm learning so much today and I know our listeners are excited to hear these things. How do these laws and biases and norms that we just we just don't even think about? On a day to day, something as simple as furniture, mm-hmm. something as simple as soap for those experiencing homelessness. How do they each contribute to the perpetuation of systemic homelessness? I think in a, in a lot of ways, I don't, this just popped into my head, but a couple of not a couple years ago, a, a while, maybe 15 years ago, my mom wanted me to come and speak to the Sunday school class at her church about homelessness. And someone raised her hand and don't homeless people want to be homeless? So they can do drugs or whatever. And I said, I don't I don't really think anybody wants to be homeless. And most people who are homeless don't do drugs and they most of them don't have a mental health condition. But I think it's those sort of back to the issue around, as we talked about earlier, you know, someone showing up with a voucher and trying to get trying to rent an apartment. There are those norms or those preconceived ideas about who this person is who needs this assistance oh, they use drugs. I don't want that in my apartment. Or, oh, they have a mental health condition. I don't want them, you know, destroying my unit or being disruptive. And so I I guess there are norms 
sort of, but they're also prejudices. And I think, yeah, those issues can contribute to to ongoing homelessness. I also think, you know, I've had conversations with people where if you're getting assistance, you shouldn't be able to use alcohol or drugs. You should be tested. And I'm those of us paying our rents and mortgages, no one's saying we can't, you know, have a glass of wine in our home. And so I think it's having, you know, different expectations for different people. So Dr. Anne Elizabeth, as we close out today, are there any learnings or takeaways from systemic bias that can be applicable to access to cleanliness and homelessness? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I mean, I think what we learned, the study we talked about with the veteran patients, that's something that came up. That was one of the themes that it's important to have a place. I mean, they spoke about, I, I need a house with a, with a sink and a bathtub that is important for people's ability to sort of live out in the, in the larger world to, to feel confident and to be able to take care of themselves. And I, I just want to say there, and I'm, y'all may have spoken about it on other podcasts or, but you know, there's a lot of work around and I, I can't speak in detail about it, but about access to, to bathrooms, access to like menstruation supplies among women experiencing homelessness. I mean, it's, these are these are real issues that, again, that I think that we take for granted because I've got two bathrooms over there and I have a, you know, washing machine and, a you know, so and I think that, you know, there are examples, especially that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic around, like I mentioned in Birmingham with the, you know, sanitation stations and different ways to like isolate and quarantine and decondense shelters. And so I think, I think there's work happening in that, in this space. And I think it's important. And I think what we've learned with the veterans we've spoken to is that they've expressed that it's important. Certainly. And I, I, I can say from the bottom of my heart, I've had an amazing time during this conversation, Dr. Anne Elizabeth, and I hope that it's uh, also special for our listeners. But here at the Right to Shower podcast, we'd like to close out on a positive note. Is there a message or an affirmation that you'd like to send out there to our listeners as we close? Wow, that's a good question. I think take care of yourselves and remember that when you encounter someone experiencing difficulty on the street and they ask you for help, Even if you don't feel obligated to to offer anything, remember it's a human being who deserves dignity and respect. And yeah, hopefully COVID is coming to an end. (laughs) Thanks so much to Dr. Anne Elizabeth Montgomery for teaching us about systemic homelessness and sharing the results of some of her work in the field. Remember, if you'd like to get involved, there's a few ways you can. You can visit therighttoshower.com slash get involved to learn more about opportunities to volunteer or donate. You can also buy our shower products on therighttoshower.com or through Amazon. For every soap you buy and shower you take, you help us bring showers to the street. Another free and simple way you can help is to rate the podcast, leave a review, or share it with a friend so we can spread the power of the shower to even more people. I'm Darius Baxter, and this has been The Right to Shower. See you next week.